Today's episode is sponsored by the Must Triumph podcast from Sam Yang. Sam describes the show as a philosophy podcast inspired by anime, pro wrestling, martial arts, Howard Zinn, Noam Chomsky, and Ralph Nader, all tied together with music and thoughtful storytelling. And although that may be a little hard to wrap your mind around, I can say that it is one of the most interesting podcasts I have come across recently. I gravitated right to the episode titled Trolling Capitalism, which argues that capitalism didn't really set people free, as it claimed, and that it's really just feudalism with better marketing. And all the evidence you need is the high number of people who see their own jobs as completely worthless to society. So definitely check it out. You can find the Must Triumph podcast wherever you listen to podcasts or directly at musttriumph.com. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the long legacy of racially-based voter disenfranchisement from Reconstruction right up to today. Clips come from Reveal, Backstory, The Brian Lehrer Show, Newsbeat, Pod Save the People, and Who, What, Why. Let's start this story in Austin, Texas, June 2010. Republican lawmakers have just proposed a very strict voter ID law, and they're making their case. The Elections Committee of the Texas House of Representatives calls a hearing. All right, good morning. Um, Fresh from the season of political party conventions where we are in the habit of saying really nice things about each other, uh, we decided to have a hearing on voter ID and give us the opportunity to continue that trend. These state representatives, who all seem a little tired, are about to get an update on the scope of elections fraud in Texas. The Texas Attorney General's office scoured the state for cases, and they've brought a detailed report to present. Every case they've seen in the previous eight years. State Representative Rafael Anchia is going over those findings. There was one case, and we might want to talk about this, of one kind of illegal voting, voter impersonation at a polling place that was in Harris County, and it's the case of Jack Carroll Crowder. Jack Carroll Crowder, the attorney general's report said, had cast a vote in his father's name in the 2008 Democratic presidential primary. He pled to the fact that he was not eligible to vote, and he voted. The committee spent almost 20 minutes talking about Crowder's case, but they never got to the big question I had, which was, why would somebody vote in his father's place? Maybe he was just super enthusiastic about a candidate and wanted to vote twice. Maybe someone paid him to do it. I figured I'd call and ask. I found a phone number for Jack Carroll Crowder. A woman named Kathy answered the phone. Um, this is his mother. Oh, hi. Um, I was hoping to reach him just to ask him if I could hear a little bit more about the voter impersonation that he was charged with. It was a total misunderstanding. He went down there to vote, and on the ledger was my deceased husband's name, which shouldn't even have been on there. And he showed his ID, and the little elderly lady told him, sign right there. And why did that little old lady tell him to sign right there? Him and his dad has the same exact name. Jack Carroll Crowder Jr. and Jack Carroll Crowder III. His father had died and shouldn't have been on the voting rolls in the first place, The whole thing was a mistake, his mom says, that the poll worker should have caught. But Jack paid a high price. He was charged with a felony and spent thousands on legal fees. Jack Carroll Crowder didn't want to talk for this story. He really wants to put all this behind him. But his mom refuses to do that. 
do you follow any of the voter ID? I haven't debate? voted since and won't. Really? I hate to be rude like that, but what they did to my family, no, ma'am, I will not vote. This case was the only prosecuted case of voter impersonation the Texas Attorney General's office could find in eight years of voting. That's more than 46 million votes cast in statewide elections. Let me say that again. 46 million votes cast, one person prosecuted for voter impersonation. Despite this striking lack of evidence, the Republican legislature pushed the law through. They even called an emergency session to do it. There was an underlying reason for all this urgency, says Vernon Burton, an historian at Clemson University who testified in court against the law. Right before this, there's all this concern that Texas will be a uh, minority, majority state, that the Latino and black population increased so that white would be in a minority. In fact, in Texas, white people already were the minority and the Republican base was shrinking. This new majority of Black and Hispanic folks would tend to vote Democrat, and the voter ID law affected them more than anyone else. Latinos and African Americans are the people who are most likely not to have the documents, to have to get off work, how hard it is to travel, less likely to have cars. Burton says the voter ID law is just the latest in a long tradition of discriminatory laws in Texas. In 1895, really, you get the all-white primary. About 30 years after African Americans got the right to vote in the first place, just as they started to gain some political power in Texas, the white conservative Democratic Party that ruled the South back then passed a new law. And here's what they said. I've actually got the exact quote. Ballots cast by Negroes are void. It went on and said that when you voted in a white primary, you had to affirm that is, you had to say, quote, I am a white and I am a Democrat. You had to go stand in front of the person who take your ballot and say out loud, I am a white and I am a Democrat. Now, lawmakers did come up with a pretext for the law. Well, the stated rationale was, in fact, to prevent voter fraud. Sound familiar? The new law would supposedly prevent illegal voting by Black and Mexican-American people. The all-white primary was around for 50 years until it was finally eradicated in 1944. But Texas already had another law in place, a poll tax. One of the most common ways states across the South kept black people from voting back then. To register to vote, you had to pay a fee. You had to pay, and then they made it cumulative in some states, so that if you missed one year, it'd be the next year, you had to pay it all back. Guess what this law was for? Again, the stated rationale was to prevent voter fraud. When the poll tax was struck down in 1966, the Texas governor called an emergency session of the legislature. He pushed a law through that required voters to re-register every year. Again, it was stated to prevent voter fraud.
Got a question for each one of you. Uh, Uh, Number nine. Does enumeration affect the income tax levied on citizens in various states? Yes. All right. Here's your question, Joanne. Uh Uh-oh. Appropriation for the armed services can be only for a period limited to X years. I have absolutely no idea. (laughs) That's probably a good answer. Ed, here's one for you. The electoral vote for president is counted in the presence of two bodies. Name them. I'm sorry. Our time is up. Okay. So <laughs> I have, what, what in the world do you have? That's, I, yeah, I, I just have, guessed on mine. I'll be honest with you. You guys got the easy questions. You got the easy questions. You got three out of 68 questions that were presented to any African-American who had the audacity to try to register to vote in Alabama in 1965. The old literacy test. So I just want to point out that at least to me, 1965 does not seem that long ago. And I love this archival document because it really captures kind of the end of the struggle (laughs) to register to vote for an African-American Alabama Mm -hmm. in 1965. Because you have to know Mm -hmm. that to even get to that point, that African-American risked their employment, they risked the employment of their families, and in some instances, they risked physical harm and even death in the very act of trying to register to vote. And I feel pretty strongly about this as some politicians try to roll back protections for voters Mm -hmm. in recent elections or talk about all kinds of voter fraud without backing it up statistically. I think people really need to understand how hard it was to vote for hundreds of thousands of Americans, in my opinion, not all that long ago. And how clearly, vitally central that is to democracy and power, because why else have those sorts of walls, right? right? right. Absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the tendency now, again, you know, to think about these elections as being kind of, you know, the big national issues of the day can sometimes obscure the intimacy of that kind of denial, right? I mean, and, mm-hmm. and the real human stakes of that. I mean, one of the things that I always you know, remember when thinking about kind of Southern voter discrimination is just all of the down ballot issues that are going to be there, right? Issues around eminent domain, you know, the taking of your land for a so-called public good or, you know, the allocation of tax dollars for new parks or what your p- tax payment will be on year to year. That can all wind up on that same ballot that you can't get access to if you fail one of these tests. It's pretty crazy. And the thing, too, Brian, is that, you know, if all of us were meant to learn uh, American government that thoroughly, that'd be one thing. But this was there for only one reason. Yes. It's because mm. the 15th Amendment said you could not abridge votes because of race. So therefore, what impediments can we throw in people's right. ways? Poll tax uh, was probably the most common way. But you put this understanding clause in there and you have basically precluded a broad range of people who might be willing to save $2 for a poll tax, but there is no way that they can overcome the sheer determination of the registrar that no matter how educated you are and how much you know this, you cannot persuade them that you deserve to vote. So I think it may surprise some of our listeners to, to consider that white voters were also being subjected to some of these tests. They could be. See, the thing is, going back to your earlier point, the idea, Nathan, is that 
this was at the discretion of the registrar in right. each county. Right. 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 And so if the registrar was your cousin, say, and you showed up and he knows <laughs> that you couldn't read the back of a matchbook, mm. he's not going to ask you these questions if you're white. But right. he could. Because right. the whole idea is this is a workaround around the 15th Amendment that says you may, may not restrict voting on the basis of race. You can restrict it on the basis of other things, failure to pay taxes or to understand the Constitution. And so it's the arbitrariness of this that mm-hmm. is so maddening. And the perverse effect of this was that it drove down the white vote as well. Mm-hmm. And so in Virginia in the 1920s, you had only 20-some percent of, of the eligible voters who even bothered to show up. Now for the midterms minute, a look at the candidates and races in battleground districts that you need to know about, shout about, and support to make the biggest impact possible in the election on November 6th. We've also set up the midterms minute HQ at bestofleft.com slash midterms, where you can view every spotlight segment we produce, every battleground race in the country, all of the Justice Democrats, brand new Congress, and our revolution candidates running in November, volunteer resources, and more. We hope you take a moment to visit bestoftheleft.com slash midterms and dive in. Today, we're going to talk about the battleground races in New Jersey, where Clinton won by 14 points. In the Senate race, incumbent Democratic Senator Bob Menendez is up for re-election. As you may know, New Jersey is a big pharma state, and so it's no surprise that Menendez is facing a former biopharmaceutical executive and Republican, Bob Hugan. Hugan is attempting to distance himself from Trump, even though he was a Trump delegate who donated the maximum to Trump's campaign and gave over $200,000 to the Republican National Committee in 2016. Hugan has also been accused of paying lobbyists to keep competing drugs off the market while profiting off overpriced cancer medication. The race is tightening and is currently rated as likely Democratic. As a reminder, the Democrats must retain all 10 battleground Senate seats and pick up two additional seats from Republicans to take the Senate. Now we move on to the House. New Jersey's 2nd District is an open race seat after the long-term Republican incumbent decided not to run for re-election. Now, Democrat and State Senator Jeff Van Drew faces Republican and Attorney Seth Grossman in the general, along with one Libertarian and three Independents. Grossman, the Republican, lost the support of the National Republican Congressional Committee and was asked to step aside this summer when Media Matters reported that Grossman shared an opinion piece from a white nationalist-linked website disparaging black people as, quote, a threat to all who cross their paths, unquote. Trump won this district by 4.4%, but Obama won here twice. The race is currently rated as likely going to the Democrat. In New Jersey's 3rd District, former Obama National Security Advisor and Democrat Andy Kim is running to unseat Republican incumbent Tom MacArthur. Trump just squeaked by with a win in this district, but polls now show Kim with a small lead over MacArthur. MacArthur was one of the all-male group of congressional architects behind the horrifying Trump Care bill, which was thankfully defeated in 2017. Kim has said the Trump Care bill is what motivated him to run for office, and he has vowed not to accept corporate money. This race has recently moved from leaning Republican to a toss-up. 
In New Jersey's 7th District, Obama's State Department official and Democrat Tom Malinowski is facing Republican incumbent and self-proclaimed moderate Leonard Lance, along with a Green Party candidate and an independent. Lance and the GOP machine are trying to paint Malinowski as an out-of-touch D.C. insider and are warping his human rights and anti-torture work by saying he fought for terrorist rights. Clinton won this district by just one percentage point, and this race is currently rated as a toss-up. New Jersey's 11th district is another open-seat race. Democrat and former federal prosecutor Mikey Sherrill faces Republican and Assemblyman Jay Weber in November. Trump barely won this district by less than a percentage point, though McCain and Romney each won here by five. In his ads, Weber is actually attempting to both defend Medicare as a great program while simultaneously calling Medicare for All a, quote, dangerous socialized medicine scheme that would destroy Medicare. Meanwhile, Republicans are actively trying to gut the program to pay for their corporate tax cuts. Don't try these political acrobatics at home, folks. This race is currently rated as leaning Democratic. If you want to vote in the New Jersey midterm elections, you must be registered by October 16th. Absentee ballot requests must be made in person by Monday, November 5th at 3 p.m., and completed ballots must be received by Tuesday, November 6th at 8 p.m. Please note that early voting is not available in New Jersey. And it's never too early to check registration cutoff dates and absentee ballot requests and submission dates in your own state. We highly suggest reviewing your state's important dates and voter ID laws at rockthevote.org as soon as possible to ensure you will be able to vote in the general election. Links to all of the information you heard today, as well as additional resources, are linked in the show notes. And today's Midterms Minute, along with all of our election information, can be found at bestoftheleft.com slash midterms. So if making the blue wave a reality in November is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about supporting Democrats in battleground races across the country via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. Carol Anderson is a professor of African-American studies at Emory University and the author of the award-winning book, White Rage. Her new book is One Person, No Vote, How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy, and it brings her back to the show. Welcome back, Professor Anderson. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Brian. You opened the book by talking about the results in 2016 when African-Americans showed up at the polls in lower numbers than in previous elections. And you make the case that that was as much about deliberate efforts to suppress their votes as because of what the media has talked about a lot more, which is a lack of enthusiasm for Hillary Clinton compared to Barack Obama. So was the lower turnout primarily in states with impediments to voting? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you can, in fact, see that in states that had enacted voter suppression laws, those are the states that flipped from blue to to Trump. Um, And those voter suppression laws were very targeted hits. Um, And so if we think of those votes, uh, those states generally as in the South, Texas, North Carolina, are they also Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania? Yes, they absolutely are. And that is because um, the the drive for this latest wave of voter suppression have been the Republicans. And so where you are seeing Republican governments, where the legislature and the governor are both Republicans, that's where you're seeing the implementation of a lot of these horrific laws. Your review in the book, The History 
of anti-black voter suppression that dates from Reconstruction, things like poll taxes and literacy tests that people know if they know history, Mm -hmm. and how the 1965 Voting Rights Act finally resulted in an end to many of those things. And yet something has changed back after the Supreme Court decision that many see as eviscerating that law. Remind us of that. Yeah, and that that evisceration was the Shelby County v. Holder decision in 2013 by the U.S. Supreme Court, where in a 5-4 decision written by Chief Justice John Roberts, he argued that the Voting Rights Act was no longer necessary because of the rampant racism that had required the Voting Rights Act in the first place was no longer active in the United States. He said that the law was basically calcified because so few districts have been bailed out of the uh, out of the preclearance uh, provisions of the of the Voting Rights Act. And so one thing that's changed um is that since a Democratic president LBJ pushed through the Voting Rights Act, the Republicans rather than the Southern Democrats became the, the the party resisting expansion of voting access. Absolutely, because what you had with the Southern strategy is you had those Southern Democrats being wooed into the party, uh, particularly in 1968 and, and solidified in 1980, first by Nixon and then by Reagan. And so it just took that kind of virulent white supremacy that operated in policy-wise in the Democratic Party and moved it into the Republican Party. President Trump was elected without winning the popular vote. The second time that has happened in recent history, of course, George W. Bush won that way in 2000, once Florida's electoral votes were given to him. You see a through line between the two results, but not just what happened in Florida, also in Missouri, and particularly voting in St. Louis, and especially the now what we think of as Trumpian idea that widespread voter fraud needed to be addressed Give us some of that backstory. Yes. Yeah, so some of that backstory with St. Louis is that the board, St. Louis Board of Elections had illegally purged almost 50,000 voters who were primarily in Democratic precincts, purged them from the voter rolls and didn't inform them. So this is a clearly illegal purge. People came to the uh, voting precinct to vote, found out they weren't on the rolls, but the poll workers didn't have any way to verify it. They couldn't call in because the lines were jammed. People were sent downtown to the Board of Elections, left there for hours trying to figure it out. The polls are getting ready to close. Democrats get a court order to keep the polls open for three additional hours to to deal with this backlog. Republicans came back and immediately had a court shut down the polls within 45 minutes, hollering that this was about massive voter fraud. And in case anyone is in doubt that the goal of greater voter access is universal, here's an old clip from 1980 of conservative activist Paul Weirich, co-founder of the Heritage Foundation, Moral Majority, and other groups in a speech that we think is before a Christian right audience in Dallas, uh, but he speaks very candidly to this group in 1980. Now, many of our Christians have what I call the goo-goo syndrome, good government. They want everybody to vote. I don't want everybody to vote. Elections are not won by a majority of people. They never have been from the beginning of our country, and they are not now. As a matter of fact, our leverage in the elections quite candidly goes up as the voting populace goes down. Gasp. Yes. (laughs) Uh, That That was candid. That was candid, and that's the blueprint. That's the blueprint. 
let's take a call of pushback, I think, from Leonardo and Yapank. Hello, Leonardo. You're on WNYC. Hey, can you hear me? Sure can. Okay. Um, my background uh, is kind of diverse, but part of it includes many years working for the Board of Elections. And I have to tell you that I have a big problem believing that anyone is trying to suppress minorities. And I'm going to tell you the primary reason why. The truth of the matter is minorities make up such a small number of the actual voters that it's hard to believe that anyone really would care whether or not they're voting. I have seen this year after year after year. And it's just, it happens all the time. And I'm going to go slightly off track here and talk about the recent decision in New York to allow um, individuals who are on parole and or probation to vote. Um, and everyone is making a big stink about that. The truth of the matter is that over 98% of men who are incarcerated have never voted. So they're not going to go out and vote. So I... I'm that believing mm -hmm. that anyone is targeting minorities. Not Le Leonardo, I'm going to leave it there because our time is short and get a response. Frankly, I think that's just naive. There's just so much history that proves it. It's so much history that proves that. The targeting, particularly of African Americans, but there's also the targeting of Latinos. Um, and it's well documented. It's, 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 um, North Carolina where the Fourth Circuit says that the state legislature targeted African Americans with nearly surgical precision. Um, one of the ways they did it with early voting. The way, with the impact of that was that black voter turnout in early voting went down by 8.5%. That means a lot in North Carolina. And with respect to uh, probation and parole, there are pushes on both sides, right? So there are um, movements to try to expand uh, the numbers of voters um, um, who you know, might be disproportionately African-American. Unfortunately, we're talking about that population. Um, and, you know, I guess that's a push and pull over the years. After you've served your time for a crime, how long should you continue to lose your right to vote for? Right, because in Florida, you know, you have permanent felony disfranchisement. What that means is we have 6.2 million people in the United States who are disfranchised because of a felony conviction. In Florida, 1.6 million of them reside in Florida. That means that 40% of black men cannot vote in Florida. Almost 23% of black adults in Florida cannot vote. Now, they get counted in the census so that they get the Florida gets the kind of representation that they want in the House of Congress, in uh, the U.S. Congress, but they don't have the ability to vote. It's almost like the three-fifths rule again. And, and wiping out that kind of population can tip the scales in an election in Florida. Um, and in Florida, you know who was a resident of Florida when he was alive? And there's a story that I've told a few times when we talk about this topic because it brings it home for people who aren't usually engaged in this. The late owner of the Yankees, George Steinbrenner, was a resident of Florida, and he was convicted of a campaign finance felony with respect to illegal contributions to the Nixon campaign, and he lost his ability to vote. Wow. And Ronald Reagan pardoned him. 
And the reason Ronald Reagan pardoned George Steinbrenner for illegal campaign contributions to Richard Nixon was so that George Steinbrenner could vote again in the state of Florida. Boom. (laughs) Boom. Today's episode is sponsored by Blinkist, the app that summarizes more than 2,500 best-selling nonfiction books, packing all of the key insights into blinks that you can read or have read to you as an audiobook in just 15 minutes or so. And I've been using the app now for a couple of weeks. My total books blinked is up to about 35, and I can honestly say that it is a very rare blink that doesn't give me some new insight or spark some new thought. And my favorite recent insight was from a Barbara Ehrenreich book, uh, Reframing the purpose behind motivational thinking and self-improvement workshops, especially when sponsored by corporations for their employees. No matter how well-intentioned they may be, they serve to perpetuate a purely individualistic view of success and failure while suppressing any thoughts about structural factors that may be at play, such as discrimination. And just think about which one of those two lines of thought is beneficial for corporations. Now, I don't know where I would have stumbled across that insight if not for Blinkist, And that's just one example of dozens. So with more than 2,500 titles in their library and more being added all the time, I've got a whole lot more insights to glean, and I'm pretty excited about it. And for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer for you, our listeners. You can go to Blinkist.com slash best to start your seven-day free trial and try it for yourself. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash best to start your seven-day free trial, and of course, you can cancel any time. Blinkist.com slash best. Many states have risen up in open defiance. The legislative halls of the South ring loud with such words as interposition and nullification. But even more, all types of conniving methods are still being used to prevent Negroes from becoming registered voters. The denial of this sacred right is a tragic betrayal of the highest mandates of our democratic tradition. Give us the ballot, and we will no longer have to worry the federal government about our basic rights. Give us the ballot, and we will no longer plead to the federal government for passage of an anti-lynching law. We will, by the power of our vote, write the law on the statute books of the South and bring an end to the dastardly acts of the hooded perpetrators of violence. I've lost my civil rights and, and my ability to vote uh, because you know, I, I, I lay the blame primarily on myself with having a drug addiction. You know, and because of my addiction to drugs, I made quite a few mistakes in my life. That which uh, allowed me to have felony convictions. Those mistakes also took me, drove me to being homeless. And, and for quite a number of years, I lived on the streets in Florida, uh, a homeless person addicted to drugs and with no hope. And eventually 
I ended up in front of railroad tracks in August of 2005 with no light at the end of the tunnel, and I was ready to, to end my life. And I stood there waiting on the train to come. But by the grace of God, the train didn't come that day, and I, I crossed those tracks and I checked myself into drug treatment. And after completing about four months of that, I moved into a homeless shelter. And while living in a homeless shelter, I decided to go to school. And I enrolled in one of the local colleges uh, in South Florida and uh, did real well for myself and eventually I got accepted in a law school. And in May of 2014, I ended up uh, graduating uh, with a Juris Doctorate degree from Florida International University College of Law. So I know firsthand the feelings of not being able to vote. I know firsthand the experiences of, of making a mistake and, and paying for it and repaying that debt. And But what I know even more than that is that feeling of even after repaying my debt, even after overcoming the obstacles that, that I was able to overcome in my life to eventually graduate with a law degree, that feeling of, of the state of Florida just telling me I'm still not worthy. I'm still not worthy of being an American citizen. That I'm still relegated to a second-class citizenship status. That pronouncement was most profound last election cycle when my wife ran for office. You know, I wasn't even able to vote for her. Florida Rights Restoration Coalition has, for quite a number of years, been leading the effort around felon disenfranchisement. It's particularly important in Florida because Florida happens to have the distinction of being the worst state in the country as it relates to disenfranchising its own citizens. To date, we have over 1.68 million people who cannot vote or who do not have their civil rights restored because of a prior felony conviction. Just to put that in context, that's more people than population of several states in U.S. territories and over 50 countries in the world. We account for, I believe, a quarter of the total amount of people in the United States who cannot vote because of a prior felony conviction. Nikki Johnson is a junior and the president of her student government program at St. Pete College. Years ago, she was convicted for having marijuana and another time for writing bad checks. She's never served prison time and completed her probation in 2010. I understand now that my choices were choices and that those choices has made me the woman that I am today. She lost her right to vote. Since then, she's been fighting to get it back. The I-team discovered Nikki is not alone. We found the clemency board under Governor Rick Scott. I deny a full pardon. Has restored the fewest rights to nonviolent criminal offenders who completed their sentences when compared to the past two governors before him. And so the, our organization have been leading the efforts since, I believe, 2003 as it relates to changing these policies here in Florida, understanding the origins of these policies and, and the current impact that it has on all American citizens. We realize that there is a, it's a very important for us to remove these Jim Crow legacies and allow American citizens to fully participate in the democratic process. There are four states that disenfranchise persons with felony convictions for life. Those states include Florida, Virginia, Iowa, and Kentucky, unless the governor pardons a state resident, thereby reinstating their voting rights after a felony conviction. And there are two states, Maine and Vermont, where residents never lose their right to vote. So even persons who are incarcerated behind state prison are allowed to vote. 
The curve for disenfranchisement has grown just like the curve for incarceration has grown. Since the 70s, mirroring the scaling up of incarceration in this era of mass incarceration, there were 1.17 million U.S. residents barred from voting due to a felony conviction in 1976. And in 2016, there were 6.1 million residents around the country who were barred for voting. The scale of disenfranchisement has increased just like the scale of imprisonment has increased over the last 30, 40 years or so. There's a war going on, ain't nothing civil. Every step of the way, they try and trick you. And if you get in the way, they try and trip you up. If this ain't Jim Crow, then it's a tribute. They scream voter fraud, that's almost a mitzu. They want them civil war ever laws to just continue. Molded the system to work, it's, it's official. Do you know how it feels? To be wiped out What six mil do Jerry's hanging Heavy handed Gerrymandering Foreign languages What's cracking What's really happening Send them packing So many unfair advantages Survive hell and can't vote Cause of some cannabis Ain't that a Slang and crack Will kill your own kind Plus add more injury to that When it's voting time We told the line Like some good old fine citizens Instead of being noble And sublime In our convictions The reality of Excluding people from felony convictions from civic life goes back to the founding of this country and even before, you know, the United States was created. It was a policy that European colonialists brought over with them, this idea of a civil death for people, residents who had broken the social contract. There are deep roots around that policy in the United States. That policy was racialized as this country oriented itself around a racial caste system after the civil war was concluded and there was this there are essential questions about citizenship and what it meant to be a citizen in the United States, particularly since that fundamental question has been racialized since the founding and the orientation around resources in this country along race lines and other um, questions of class particularly for property owners, most of whom were white male residents. In the constitutional history of several states around the country, the record is clear that colonialists, white elites, and those state conventions created voting exclusion for residents, intentionally trying to exclude residents of color, including black men, specifically black men. In a state like Alabama, where the voting exclusions were included in the state constitution along lines of felony conviction, uh, the white elites who drafted and wrote and ratified the state's constitution had specific exclusions for felony offenses that they assumed were being committed by black residents. So in that state, there are felony offenses where people never lost their right to vote, people convicted of homicide in the state of Alabama when that state was first founded and the Constitution first ratified, never lost their right to vote, yet individuals convicted of robbery offenses did. It goes back a long, long way to societies that predate the United States. But it really, in, in that sense, dates back to concepts of government that we no longer really believe in, right? It dates to this idea that when you commit a crime, you're an outlaw, you're no longer part of the community, you're no longer part of the citizenry, and there should be like a civil death that is 
uh, visited upon you. We don't believe in that anymore. And in the United States, we've never really believed in that, I don't think. But that history aside, the, the history in the United States, though these laws existed in some form prior to the Civil War, they were limited and they were sort of outdated. Once the Civil War ends and we have the 14th and the 15th Amendments ratified that say that everyone in the United States has to be treated equally and that you can't deny the right to vote on the basis of race, we see a huge wave of these laws either being passed or being intensified, uh, amended in a way that, that adds new crimes to the list of crimes that can lead to disenfranchisement. There's both specific evidence in some states that this was done intentionally in order to disenfranchise African-Americans, and just the trend itself demonstrates that. So after the Civil War, you see black codes is what they're referred to, criminal codes, changes to the criminal law that are that are put into effect in order to criminalize African-Americans. Um, and to limit their freedom after emancipation. And you see voter disenfranchisement laws, which work in tandem with these these efforts at criminalization of African-Americans to ensure that even though now a state couldn't pass a law saying that black people, and in fact, then we're talking about only men, that black men couldn't vote, states could get around that by passing these felon disenfranchisement laws. And then when you have the, all the structural inequality built into criminal justice systems, both back then and now, a felon disenfranchisement law ensures that you will have a disproportionate impact on people of color and also on people from lower income communities and generally people who are marginalized in other ways. And so this history of excluding people from the right to vote based on color and other factors is deep in this country, goes back decades centuries at this point and is something that this voter enfranchisement conversation is working to to counter the tactics is mad slick this shit is tragic they stop one two three it's like a hat trick cross check but they ignore steps if that ain't with their narrative then pass the blame because they ain't having it chains on the ballot boxes catastrophic but who can stop it it's not just mega hat rockers it's democrats suit playing fast loose lobbyists lining pockets and signing documents it's obvious so i want to tell you the story of crystal mason if you haven't heard it already and if you have you know exactly where the story is about to go. Um, Crystal Mason is a mother of three living in Fort Worth, Texas, right outside of Dallas. And in the 2016 election, she went to her local polling place. She said she wanted to set an example for her kids and make sure that they knew that voting was one of the most important things they could do. She walked up and found out that her name was actually not on the list. And so she filed, as people often do, a provisional ballot. It's happened to me before. It just means that you sign a piece of paper saying that you can vote and you fill out your ballot, put it in an envelope, and it gets sent to the Board of Elections. What she didn't know is that she was, in fact, ineligible to vote. Uh, she had served five years for tax fraud. She was on supervised release, um, and she had been abiding by all of the rules of said release. Uh, and she, along with 500,000 other Texans, are ineligible to vote for the exact same reason, that they had committed a second-degree felony. Because she didn't know this at the time, and because she did not see on that piece of paper a line that says uh, that you swear by signing this that you are eligible to vote, she is now facing five years in prison in the state of Texas. This is exactly 
what we mean when we talk about voter intimidation. Five years for going to exercise your right to vote in order to send a message to other people that you might as well go ahead and stay home. The wild part of all of this um, is not only that she's facing five years for this simple act, but that actually voter fraud is not a widespread problem across the country or even in Fort Worth, Texas. In fact, um, people not voting enough is the problem that they are facing. Uh, 6% of eligible voters actually voted in the last midterms in Fort Worth, and 1.5% of those who are eligible to vote between the ages of 18 and 35 voted in Fort Worth. And so for trying to exercise that right to vote, not being aware that she was ineligible, which by the way, shouldn't even be the case, she is now facing five years in prison. Uh, Crystal Mason is someone who we should be thinking about every single time we have an opportunity to vote because her and 500,000 other people, 1.5 million people in the state of Florida, people all over this country are being turned away at the ballot box because they committed a crime and even though they've paid their debt to society, are not eligible to participate in the citizenry as we all are. I'm disgusted by the outcome of this case and it's something that we should all be thinking about as we continue to fight to re-enfranchise voters all across this country. So I have three observations about this case. The first is that this is clearly an attempt at using this one case in order to set an example to suppress the vote writ large, right? For people who don't know whether they are eligible to vote. So, you know, we've talked about this in the past. In addition to the 6 million people who are prohibited from voting currently because of a felony conviction. There are another 6 million people who actually are eligible to vote, who've served uh, the terms of their sentence, uh, but don't know that they are eligible to vote. Um, and that is because in many cases, when you are released from prison, when your uh, term is up and you've served your time, uh, oftentimes states don't even notify you that you now have the ability to vote in states that don't permanently disenfranchise you, which is most states. Um, and so, you know, by doing this and, and setting sort of an example by severely punishing somebody uh, who didn't even know uh, that they couldn't vote, uh, that dissuades uh, this broader population of millions of people uh, from being able to cast a vote. Because, I mean, who's going to vote if the potential punishment for being wrong about your eligibility to vote uh, is five years in prison? The second observation is how different the criminal justice system approaches uh, a black woman who didn't know whether or not she could vote and a white male su uh, potential Supreme Court nominee who lied multiple times in this confirmation hearing. Uh, many people are saying that he committed perjury, but the thing is that with perjury, a crime that oftentimes is levied against people in positions of power who are often under oath, that you have to prove intent. Right. So you would have to prove that he intentionally didn't know uh, and that or that he intentionally knew what he was saying was a lie uh, and that he lied anyway under oath. Whereas in this case, they didn't have to prove intent at all. Uh, in fact, she didn't intentionally you know, commit a crime. She didn't even know in the first place that she couldn't vote. Um, and so that sort of double standard in how the law is written uh, and who those laws tend to apply, be applied to uh, is sort of creates this double standard where we see people going to jail for things uh, that are, uh, you know, far less severe and consequential than some of the things that we see folks like Brett Kavanaugh uh, getting away with that, that impacts so many people. Yeah, I think you all both gave really 
important and comprehensive sort of uh, frame frameworks around uh, why this is so important. And, and for me, just just a couple observations. Um, one, I mean, obviously, this is super relevant in Texas because uh, lots of polls are showing that Beto O'Rourke is within striking distance, literally within a point or two of of Ted Cruz. And this is for the first the first time that uh, a Texas race for the Senate has been that close in in decades, I think. Um, and and so, you know, this is literally every vote matters. I think I read that there were six hundred thousand people who were disenfranchised from. Uh, access to the polls as a result of voter disenfranchisement laws in Texas. And, and if you consider, you know, how close this race could very well be, um, every, you know, only a couple dozen votes in every piece precinct will, will matter. But, but more generally with regard to the relationship between, uh, voter suppression and, and black folks, I, I think, you know, what's an interesting thing to think about is that if you look at the top 10 blackest states in the United States, nine of them don't let you vote if you're serving any type of sentence. And five of the 10 blackest states restrict your vote even after you've served your sentence. And in what surely, uh, you know, must be a coincidence, Maine and Vermont are the two whitest states in the country. And they are also the two states that allow people to vote while they are in prison, not after they have been released, but literally while the people are still incarcerated. And so it is, it is difficult to believe uh, that it is, merely happenstance that the whitest states in the country, the most homogeneously white states in the country, allow people to vote while they are still in prison, while nine of the 10 states with the highest black populations per capita um, don't let you vote if you're serving any type of sentence, whether it be parole, probation, what have you. Um, and so, you know, these these statistics, I think we can throw statistics at folks as a means of trying to communicate how important and urgent and relevant these things are. And sometimes those can get lost, but I think this is really important in understanding the the fundamental relationship of racism and the legacy of Jim Crow to the sort of contemporary policies around voting and voting access that exist today. And it is, so, I think, also often people attempt to disaggregate and disentangle the conversation around voter suppression from, like people will say, oh, well, you know, voter suppression exists but uh you know that is different than the people who who simply don't vote like i think i think we simply we fail to understand the myriad of ways by which voter suppression acts upon communities even when some of the people within those communities could still ostensibly vote but like if there is a sort of large massive voter suppression and intimidation uh, as ex- as is exemplified by the story that Brittany talked about um we we have to account for the ways in which that sort of larger cloak of fear and intimidation shapes what the turnout uh, is going to look like for for a larger uh, community of people. Con artists and what seems to be the truth is they need legal excuses to keep being abusive. What kind of humanity is that? How you appeal to it? Waiting on a confession, you will be real foolish. Looking for a kind heart, ain't that bright bark? Might march into your home or drown your ass without a lifeguard. It's not a cartoon, no, yo, it's true life. It's still America, but really it's like two kinds. When across this country in 2016, there are those who are still trying to deny people the right to vote. We've got to push back twice as hard. Right now in multiple states, Republicans are actively and openly trying to prevent people from voting, adding new barriers to registration, cutting early voting, closing polling places in predominantly minority communities. 
refusing to send out absentee ballots, kicking people off the rolls, often incorrectly. It should be a national scandal. In the United States, across the country, we're kind of in this place with our laws where we see both restrictive laws and expansive laws being passed. It depends on the state you're in, and we sort of see them going back and forth in different places. But we are in an era where there are unfortunately a lot of laws being passed that restrict the right to vote in various ways that are aimed at voter suppression that are purporting to do good things or fight against things like voter fraud, but in reality just lead to voter suppression. We're the only advanced democracy in the world that is actively discouraging people from voting. It's a shame. These felon disenfranchisement laws are an example of that. They're they're much older than many of these other kinds of laws that we talk about. They've been around much longer, but they are an example of a law that purports to be accomplishing some legitimate objective. One of them that people have probably heard about a lot are voter ID laws, laws that require people to show some photo ID in order to vote. I think those laws are often offered as a way of fighting against voter fraud. Between 2000 and 2012, there were 10 cases of voter impersonation nationwide. 10. People don't get up and say, I'm going to impersonate somebody and go vote. I think time and time again, studies have shown that in-person voter fraud is vanishingly rare. And these voter ID laws are just not necessary to accomplish that goal. And instead, the impact is that they stop a lot of people from voting and that that impact is felt disproportionately on certain populations, people of color, students, uh, elderly folks. We're very excited by the fact that there are some states that are hopefully have made and going to be making progress on these criminal disenfranchisement laws. So I live in New York and the governor of New York signed an executive order saying that he wanted a list of everybody on parole and people on parole in New York are barred from voting to be sent to his office every week so that he could consider them for a partial pardon that would give them the right to vote back. And then he announced he had restored the right to vote to 24,000 people living on parole in New York. In this state, when you're released from prison and you're on parole, you still don't have the right to vote. Now, how can that be? You did your time, you paid your debt, you're released but you still don't have a right to vote. At the same time, we're saying we want you part of society. We want you to get back into the community. You know, just imagining about what it would feel like to step into a voting booth and vote uh, is something that I kind of don't think all the way out because I get a little sentimental and sometimes it might get me a little teary-eyed just to think about that because I know I've seen it. I've seen men and women who... Uh, on one hand, would say that they didn't care about voting and come to find out that they said that because they thought that they couldn't vote. And then when they found out that they could, seeing how tears would just stream down their face and then being with them when they go to vote for the first time and watching that look when they come out and how their eyes are red from crying. And, you know, that, that it's, I know it's going to be a powerful moment because as American citizen. Like I said, nothing speaks more to citizenship than having that opportunity. And for someone who has lost it and have been yearning for it for quite a number of years, to be able to get it back, I know it's going to be a very emotional time. Let's be very clear with this. Any critic that's against this, right, 
are masking their reasons. At the end of the day, you know, I don't think it's hardly anyone that would say that they don't ever want to be forgiven for what they've done. That's what we're talking about, about the, the part that a person has paid a debt. It's time for them to move on. You cannot continuously make someone pay that debt. The other part of this is that if your decision about whether or not a person convicted of a felony who have paid their debt should be allowed to vote again, if it's based in whole or in part on how you think they may vote, then your opposition is anti-American, it's anti-patriotic, it's undemocratic because you're looking to suppress someone's vote because they don't vote like you. And that is not what America is all about. America is about creating a more inclusive democracy. America is about having the diversity of opinions and, and positions that we coming together as a nation and working through those things. Whenever you have to uh, decide about whether or not you want to support or restoring the ability to vote to someone and in the back of your head, you're thinking about how they may vote or may not vote. That's inherently a problem with that. When we talk about an inclusive democracy, we mean that we want inclusive democracy for everyone, for everyone. Really get some walls on. How you feel, how you feel though Sounding like a broken record but it's real though Sounding like a joke, you saying we're equal The black code still a fact though, yeah it's real yo A black hole if you call it what it is Three hour wait for the black vote, what it is Average wait for a polling place, 20 minutes They know they ain't right taking names off the list They ain't taking doubles off when it's James Smith But soon as it's my brothers though, they turning plain tip Dead man walking, dead woman, dead Kids set you up to fail every step, every trip. They say you paid your debt, but it's only on paper, though. You still in the system, they just got you on laser scope. How come only cons in Vermont and the main can vote? Pendulum in the swing states, and who's favor, though? They say there's not slaves no more. They say they ain't racist, oh. They say we free, explain it, though. Or how we make it so. They say there's not slaves no more They say they ain't racist, oh They say we free, explain it though Or how we make it so How do you see all of this playing out in the 2018 elections from what you're seeing both nationally but more specifically in some of the high-profile races that we're looking at in places like Georgia and Florida? And what I see happening um, is civil society and, in fact, many citizens are now on alert. Uh, I take, for instance, the example of um, Randolph County, Georgia. What happened there was, uh, let me back up, after, what, what happened there was that uh, a consultant who was an ally of Brian Kemp, who is our Secretary of State and now the Republican um, running for governor, had recommended in Randolph County that is over 60% black. This is in that, Georgia for our listeners. We're talking about Georgia here. Georgia, yes. Right. Randolph County in Georgia had recommended that 60, uh, wait, let me back up, 60%, over 60% of Randolph County is African American. 
he had recommended that seven of the nine polling places be shut down before the general election. Now, he used the excuse that they were not ADA compliant, but the issue of ADA compliance was not there during the primary when Brian Kemp was running, nor was it there during the GOP runoff between Brian Kemp and Casey Cagle. It, it reared its head when it became clear that Kemp was going to be running against Stacey Abrams, an African-American woman. And when you began to look at where his consultant had designated most of the polls to be closed, there were 10 counties in Georgia. Uh, those 10 counties all had sizable black populations. But civil society was watching and began spreading the word about what these recommendations were designed to do um, and how they were, they, they were designed to, to force many Randolph County residents to go 10 miles to be able to vote. And they flooded social media, they flooded traditional media, and they packed the Board of Elections meeting where that proposal was being voted upon, and they shut it down. And so it's that kind of, frankly, eternal vigilance. This election is requiring that level of eternal vigilance. Um, we see in Texas where... Texas also has a strict voter ID law. Texas tried to close over 200 uh, uh, departments of motor vehicles where people could get their licenses. So with Texas trying to close over 200 of these, and they already had one-third of their counties without a department of motor vehicles when they passed um, SB 14, their voter ID law that was going to require people to make a 250-mile round trip to get a license that you don't drive. Um, this was massive voter suppression, again, because it wasn't like they were offering a viable alternative. And remember, there is a close election happening in Texas right now um, that looks like it can unseat Senator, sitting Senator Ted Cruz. Um, and so... You're seeing all of these methods being deployed because the the Republicans are almost uh, are almost like their population is about ninety percent white, and their platform cannot speak to a broader, diverse America. Um, it could, but they've made a choice for it not to, and to speak, in fact, to the base. Um, and by speaking to the base, they have then become very repugnant to many Americans. Um, there was a recent poll where uh, millennials, um, African-American, Latino, and Asian-American uh, millennials and white millennials um, all said that the Republican Party just did not address any of their concerns. Um, so... The response then is, how do you win these elections if our policies don't bring in the voters? And the way they're doing it is via voter suppression. Do you see this trend continuing? I see that they will fight 
um, tooth and nail for voter suppression. We and I, and and I say that because it would seem, for instance, that after a federal court says mm, this has a discriminatory impact, that the state would go back going, "Oops, sorry, didn't mean that," and then draft a law that was clean. But that's not what Texas did. That's not what North Carolina did. That's not what Wisconsin did. Instead, they went back and tried to finesse it so that they could push it through again to have the same uh, disparate impact on uh, minority voters. And so, and having to go back to the court over and over and over and over. And so now, for instance, we're looking at North Carolina that um, the court has said, your gerrymandered districts are racially discriminatory. And North Carolina's response is, yeah, but it's too close to the election to redraw them, so why don't we just keep them? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and that is part of the way that this thing works. And so you imagine holding yet another election with racially discriminatory boundaries to create a racially discriminatory state legislature. So it's going to require our eternal vigilance. It's going to require that we vote I mean, we have got to turn out and vote. Um, again, I look at those folks in Alabama where Alabama did everything possible to keep them from the polls. And they turned out in record numbers, higher than the state average. That's what we're going to have to do if we're going to be able to then put in place um, policymakers who really value and believe in democracy and are trying to figure out how do we include more American citizens um, in this democracy than rather exclude them. We've just heard clips today, starting with Reveal, breaking down the long history of lying about the non-existent problem of voter fraud. Backstory discussed the history of literacy tests and their connection to today's voter suppression methods. The Brian Lehrer Show spoke with Carol Anderson about the many and varied realities of voter suppression. Then we heard Newsbeat in two parts break down the history of felon disenfranchisement laws that sprang up during the Jim Crow era. Pod Save the People explains that felon disenfranchisement and the harsh penalties attached to it work to also intimidate many people away from the polls, even though they have every right to vote. And finally, we just heard Who, What, Why, who also spoke with Carol Anderson about the forces of good and civil society fighting back as hard as ever against the tidal wave of efforts to suppress the vote. Members will be getting a bonus episode with an additional clip on today's topic that looks at the right to vote from another direction and gives yet more reasons why restoring voting rights is good for society. For details on membership, visit patreon.com slash bestofleft, and you can find that link in the show notes on your devices, which is also where you can find the links to each of these segments for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hey, man. My name is Tanner. I live in the Los Angeles area, originally from from the Midwest. So so I just got done listening to the, the episode about Monopoly. And there's a lot of talk about, right, like 
government regulation and being able to thwart these monopolies through the government, essentially. And I feel like the United States arrives at the same place over and over and over again in history. And it's not necessarily that we need government regulation. I don't see that as the problem, but seeing it for for the bigger picture, which is the structure of our economy. So for me, it comes down to, to capitalism. And it seems like everything leads back to our strict form of capitalism for our economy, that it kind of dictates everything else, that it leads to monopolies, that it leads to the eradication of any social safety net, that it leads to inequalities as far as healthcare and education. So I can even make a really good argument that it leads to racism and it leads to inequality as far as gender goes, that it almost needs those things in order for it to exist, if that, if that makes sense. So for us to be up in arms about government regulation in regards to monopoly or whatever else it may be, is that the problem that we don't have enough regulation or is the problem, is the core of it just simply capitalism? So just my thoughts and listening to it. Appreciate the show, man. Keep doing your thing and I'll stay tuned. Peace. So I was about to call bullshit on your, your whole thing about the Tepta markers. I'm like, I've been listening. To, I've had an eye device that I've been listening to your show on for like eight years. And previously, it was always chapter markers. And they disappeared. And for years, I didn't know where they were. And then you said, upgrade to the new OS, iOS, and they'll be there. And I was like, no, they're not there. I already upgraded a couple nights ago because I was having some issues with it. That's the reason I was, I downloaded 12 right away, even though I'm running an iPhone 6. And then you told me to scroll down and I saw below the show notes, the beauty of them and how they were organized by the name and everything below that. And it was a sight to behold. Thank you, Jay. Seriously, that's amazing. I used to use them back when I had them on an iOS device or thought I had them back a long time ago. Honestly, to skip over to music. I often enjoy just listening to your podcast on regular speed, including the music. But sometimes I'm a just the facts person because I'm well behind on every show. I haven't listened to podcasts in three weeks and I'm skipping through and I'm listening to everything on time and a half and I'm trying to get back on all the shows I, I have patronized and everything and I'm just trying to get through them all. But still, uh, and there's sometimes like that Van Jones clips that that guy talked about. Honestly, I listened to that a couple of times because that, that sort of idea about um, how to move forward with the divide is interesting to me. And I liked that clip, even though I don't find that I'm successful with it. All right, that was a rambling voicemail message. Uh, I wasn't calling to leave this on the phone, uh, on the, the voicemail, rather. I was just calling in. This is Nick of California to say, thank you for telling me where the chapter markers are. Seriously, I kind of always kind of missed them. And now I know where they are. And that's amazing. Thank you, buddy. Keep it up. Keep up the amazing show. It's awesome as always. Bye-bye.
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who help gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Uh, th- thanks for the excellent messages we uh, just heard today. And to Nick from California, I'm so glad you found your chapter markers again. I, I mentioned briefly in the show for, for like boring technical reasons, some people with Apple devices may have been getting chapter markers while others may not have. That's because I actually had two different feeds for the show, uh, one with chapter markers and one without, but there wasn't a great way to organize and instruct some people to use the chapter markers and others to not. And um, the chapter marker feed would actually cause technical problems for some people, primarily people uh, with Android devices, which didn't even exist when I started the show. So Android devices came on the scene, and then they'd get themselves subscribed to this feed that wasn't perfectly compatible with their device. And then I would get, uh, you know, technical problem emails. Uh, and so it was a whole mess. And so basically what this means, my announcement recently is that that it is the end of that era. There will be no more technical difficulties related to these two separate feeds because I don't have two separate feeds anymore. There is only one feed. Everyone gets the same feed, and if your device can read chapter markers, you can see it, and if your device can't read chapter markers, you won't see it, but everyone, Apple, Android, Windows Phone, whatever, everyone uh, should be able to listen to the show and have no technical problems, which is why I was so excited. Uh, that said, I'm completely agnostic to how you listen. I have no dog in that fight. Uh, I, I want you to listen in the way that is the easiest and the best for you. That said, Nick's story did get me thinking about the Apple Podcast app, which I frankly, um, I, I don't understand how Apple designed a podcast app as bad as that one. Like when I try to use it, it leaves me flummoxed. And I think that I can say with some credibility that I know a thing or two about podcasts and, uh, and that podcast app uh, confuses me to no end. I, I don't understand how to use it. So when Nick says he's been using this app for years and years and never saw the chapter markers, clearly that is a design problem. And it's not the only design problem with that app. So I'm just putting this out there as a PSA. As I said, I'm totally agnostic to it. If you love the Apple Podcast app, uh, go forward. However, if you use the Apple Podcast app because it's the one that was already on your phone and you just never thought to use anything else, let me just say you might want to check out some other podcast apps. You, you might think you like listening to podcasts now, but if you had an app that worked really well, you might love listening to podcasts. Who knows? Uh, so I, I said before, the one I use is Overcast, which is only a, an iOS app. But I mean, there are dozens out there. So if you think you're in the market for a podcast app, try a few. Uh, you might like one more than the one you, you got stuck with just because it was pre-installed on your device. Okay. And then secondly, I wanted to finish up with uh, some suggestions of what you can do. Today's episode is basically begging for some action items to go along with uh, all of this talk about voter disenfranchisement and suppression. So rather than going down the list myself uh, and, and repeating what's already been said, I'm just going to play another clip from my friends over at Newsbeat who did exactly this for their closing statement of their episode. So have a listen. Contact the groups mentioned in this episode. Show up at their rallies. Support their missions. Volunteer. 
Call up your elected representatives and demand that they support any and all legislative initiatives aimed at ending this archaic and racist disgrace. Email them. Visit their offices. Remember, they work for you. They work for you. Desmond Mead is the current state director for the nonprofit Florida Live Free Campaign and president of the nonprofit Florida Rights Restoration Coalition. The Live Free Campaign is a faith-based movement to organize local communities across the country to reduce gun violence and end mass incarceration and to generate the public and political will nationally to end the institutions and policies that contribute to the dehumanization of black and brown Americans. They can be contacted at livefreeusa.org and faithinflorida.org. The Live Free Campaign is part of the nonprofit PICO National Network the nation's largest organizer of faith-based congregations, with over 1,000 member institutions representing more than a million families in 150 cities and 17 states, including Florida. They can be reached at PicoNetwork, P-I-C-O, network.org. The Florida Rights Restoration Coalition is a grassroots membership organization run by, quote, returning citizens, formerly convicted persons, dedicated to ending the disenfranchisement and discrimination against those with convictions and creating a more comprehensive and humane reentry system that will enhance successful reentry, reduce recidivism, and increase public safety. Contact them at floridarrc.com. And speaking about Florida, for all you folks out there listening in the Sunshine State, you can very literally make a huge difference with this issue and have real impact by getting out to your local polling stations and voting on a ballot initiative this November that would restore the right to vote to all those within the state who have had this taken away from them after they've served portions of their sentence, including parole and probation. It doesn't apply to people convicted of murder or felony sexual offenses such as rape or child molestation. But overall, this amendment to the state constitution would enable people to earn back the ability to vote. This could be good. Now, as I mentioned in the episode's intro, Nicole Porter is director of advocacy at the nonprofit The Sentencing Project. Founded in 1986, The Sentencing Project works for a fair and effective U.S. criminal justice system. By promoting reforms in sentencing policy, addressing unjust racial disparities and practices, and advocating for alternatives to incarceration. Check them out at sentencingproject.org. The Brennan Center for Justice at NYU School of Law is a nonpartisan law and policy institute that works to reform, revitalize, and when necessary, defend our country's systems of democracy and justice. As counsel in its democracy program, Sean Morales-Doyle focuses on voting rights and elections, including automatic voter registration, voter fraud, and voting rights restoration. Contact them at BrennanCenter.org. And there we go. That's going to be it for today. Keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks especially to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash left. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestofleft.com. 